1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Well, if you could uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians 3, I hope you had a similar experience to Karen, who has sat beside me and halfway through the reading said, Daddy, I thought we read this last week. And if you were here, I hope you have got that sense of deja vu. Jonathan has so kindly kept all of my powder dry, and you are not going to hear the same sermon for me to test whether anybody was really listening last week. My memory has not yet got that bad. What I want to help you all, help myself think about, is a topic that I deliberately didn't dig into last week. If you were here with us, you may have spotted that I didn't really talk about rewards. I didn't talk, if you look at verse 8, at how Paul encourages the faithful builder teacher. What is their hope? as they sow and plant and build on that good foundation that we looked at last week. Verse 8, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. comes back to the same theme in verse 14. When Jesus returns to bring that day of judgment, all people... All people will be judged, including the the faithful builder teacher. Paul writes, if what has been built survives, meaning that if their ministry survives Jesus' inspection and judgment, the builder will receive a reward. According to Paul, there is a clear part of our motivation for godliness and for living lives of faithfulness that is fixed 
on our hope of a future reward. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he's looking specifically at those who are teaching and leading in the church, but the rest of the New Testament speaks as openly and inclusively to all Christians that this would be one of our motivations as brothers and sisters in the faith to live lives of godliness and holiness here and now. Which means we're not meant to follow God as followers of Immanuel Kant. If you've ever studied any of Kant's philosophy, you will know that according to Kant's way of looking at life, you should only do duty for duty's sake. In fact, he considered it immoral. He considered it a perversion to think about rewards as a reason for doing any good. That would rob you of, of, any, of any virtue in doing that if that was the goal that you had in mind. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's Word gives us lots of motivations for holiness. We are to obey the Lord, for he is our creator. That's enough reason in and of itself. We are to obey the Lord because he is our great redeemer. He has shown us the great extent of his love, as we were thinking this morning, in sending his son to the cross to die for the penalty for our sin. But another motive for our obedience and holiness is that we might receive a reward. So why don't we think and talk about rewards? Because we don't, do we? Or at least I haven't been part of those conversations if you guys have been having them when I've not been around. We don't. I've never preached on the topic. I, I was racking my brains. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on rewards. And there are lots of different reasons, I'm sure, but I want to think of two in particular to lay the groundwork and and help us see what a precious topic this is. I think we may be hesitant because we don't ever, ever want to stray towards salvation by works. And we have been rightly reminded of that during the course of this week, haven't we, in our home groups? As we've dug into Ephesians 2, we were reminded of it again uh, yesterday in our members meeting as we looked at the same passage. You have this amazing clarity from Paul in the beginning of Ephesians 2 reminding us at the beginning that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were controlled by the world, our sinful flesh, and the devil. But God, verse 4. But God, out of his great love and his rich mercy and his incomparable grace and his kindness, God made us alive in Christ or with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And to make sure there's absolutely no doubt about it, that not one portion of your brain could think that God has saved me because of something I've done. Paul says, as we read in verses 8 and 9 this week, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you're new to Christianity, salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, is the unique story of the Christian message. It is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. And we don't ever, ever, ever want to stray from that towards something that says we can do something ourselves. Now, building on that, many Christians believe that even our good works as Christians are worthless and unacceptable before God. 
And we know we used to be spiritually dead before God. If you're a Christian, you will have Romans 3 ringing in your ears. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you will have all of that in the back of your mind. And then in your Bible reading, you will come to Isaiah 64. And at some point, you will have read verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And for lots of Christians, you, we pull those texts together and are left with the impression that even as Christians, our good works before God are filthy rags. Perhaps you can uh, resonate with, with this. I'm a spiritual failure, but praise God, Jesus came to save spiritual failures like me. I can't obey God's command for one second, one nanosecond. I never truly love God with all of my heart or my neighbor as myself. Even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. If you could see my heart, you'd see that my sins are as bad as anyone else's or worse. I'm a spiritual screw-up through and through, unfaithful to my faithful God. But the good news is, God has saved me because of Christ's death and resurrection. I'm his adopted child, forgiven and clean. Nothing I can ever do would make God love me any more or any less than he already loves me in Christ. Even though I continue to sin... I can never disappoint my heavenly father for he looks at me and sees my right, the righteousness of his beloved son. What unspeakable good news. Now if you hear that first time, you hear it quite quickly, there's lots of great stuff in that description. There's a wonderful understanding of, of the awareness of God's faithfulness. There's a wonderful grasp of the, the all-conquering love of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a good understanding of how desperately we cling to his righteousness. But there's an underlying assumption that even the good works that are the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as Christians are worthless and unacceptable to God. Now before we look at whether that's right or not, I want you to conduct a thought experiment in your mind for a minute. How would your Christian life look? Or perhaps if all of that resonates with you, how does your Christian life look if that's the way you think? I think for starters, we'll be really discouraged. I think if you go through your Christian life thinking that as you faithfully seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, your good works are filthy rags. It cannot warm your heart in service towards our King. And not only that, but if the devil can grab hold of that and twist the way that you view the God who has saved you, it will leave you struggling in your relationship with your Father. It's also going to impact the way you think about pursuing holiness. If we're only spiritual failures, and if we can't obey God's commands even for a nanosecond, then over time, 
will probably quit trying. Because pursuing godliness is hard. And if you distill the gospel down to, I'm always going to get it wrong and Jesus has covered all of my sin anyway, you'll probably land in a place of, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. And holiness suddenly doesn't become a factor in the way that you're living your life. Plus, not lifting our eyes to the encouragement of the reward to come robs us of a reason to persevere in the present. God knows godliness is hard for us. He knows that we wrestle with all of the struggles that you're experiencing, that I'm experiencing in my, di- in my daily life. And, and that's part of the reason he gives us this wonderful encouragement so that we wouldn't quit in the middle of the battle. And that's what I want us to think about this evening. I want to fill your mind with the Bible's better story of how we can please God and how by pleasing him, we can be encouraged by what God has graciously promised us in the world to come. That's where we're going. But I want to get there in steps so that we don't make any assumptions. I want to start by seeing very clearly that if you are not yet a Christian, you can't please God. If you're not yet a Christian, the Bible is absolutely clear that you can't. You can do all sorts of wonderful good in the world. You can care for and bless and encourage all sorts of people. You can be an enormous help to those who are in need. You can use your time, your treasure, your talents to do enormous good in the world. All of that is wonderfully true. But you cannot please God. We've been reminded of that already in Romans 3 and uh, in the, the Baptist Confession, which is such a helpful summary of lots of good teaching, it, it, building largely on the, the Westminster Confession that we thought of earlier. There's a very honest description of good works by those who don't yet know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Works done by unregenerate, meaning yet to be saved, men, men and women, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, meaning the things in themselves are good and right, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful And cannot please God. It's a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches. About the best of the good works that non-Christians, myself included, before Jesus saved me, could do. The Bible explains to us that apart from saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the wrong heart motivation for doing it in the first place. We have the wrong desire as a goal And because of both of those things, we cannot please God. And I think that's how we should understand Isaiah 64. When you look, and by all means take more time to do so when you get home at chapters 64, 65, 66, well, basically the whole of Isaiah really, but look at those three chapters to start with. You realize that what's being described here is hypocritical worship. What's being described is the way that some would seek 
to pay lip service to God in a sacrifice to try and appease God and gain his blessing whilst actually living the whole of their life without any regard to joyfully love and serve the king that they've just sacrificed to. So you get to the beginning of chapter 65 and you've got God's judgment referring to all of the, the, the hypocritical way that these sacrifices are being made. That their sacrifices aren't that pleasing aroma They're an insult because the sacrifices are a smokescreen for what is really an unrighteous life. What made their righteous acts like filthy rags wasn't that they were genuinely righteous and could never be anything but filthy rags because they were sinners. It's that they pretended to be making sacrifices to God in sincerity when actually they had no desire to serve God at all. A heart that's dead towards God can't lovingly serve him. But what we've been reminded over the past few weeks is of the grace of God that speaks to all men and women and boys and girls and says if you would see that your heart is desperately in need of being changed, come to God and he will give you a new heart. Repent and you will be forgiven of all of your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will give you a heart of flesh to love and serve him. And for all who have, the Bible is full of this wonderful promise, second point, that Christian, you can please God. In every age and stage of your life, here are a few examples. Lots of texts on the screen. You can ask me if you don't catch them all, but just to overwhelm you in a good way with some of the references I want you to have in your mind. Obedient Christian children, please God. Colossians 3 verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Supporting your family pleases God. 1 Timothy 5 verse 4. That if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. Sharing with others pleases God. Hebrews 13, 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Growing as Christians pleases God. Colossians 1 verse 10. Live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Keeping his commandments pleases God. 1 John 3.22. We keep his commands and do what pleases him. If you think that's a lot, I was really blessed by an article written by Wayne Grudem this week. And he had more than 20 of those verses. All saying the same thing. That blood bought forgiven men and women can please God. Now, we can't do any of that in our own strength. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. It's not that when you become a Christian, you're saved by grace, and then you live on by your independent works. It's not what the Bible teaches. Paul is super clear on this. He told the Romans, everything that does not come from faith is sin. He knew that the way that he lived and served others as an apostle was completely fueled by the grace of God. Not because he was some independent, entrepreneurial, I can take on the world kind of guy. He knew. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet 
Not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What did we see was when the Lord Jesus Christ told us what it means to be in the vine? We saw Jesus say, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot please the Lord Jesus Christ in our own strength, but neither can we please him perfectly. Part of our struggle when we think about holiness and thinking about rewards is that we often equate obedience with perfection. And in some senses, that's a very natural thing for us to do as Christians because when we think of holiness, we think of God, who is utterly, totally, consistently, and flawlessly perfect. But when we think about that in our own life, we know that will never be true. Kevin DeYoung, uh, in the book that I've just read from, has a helpful way of summarizing this kind of all-or-nothing view. If walking in a worthy manner, which is what we're thinking about in Colossians, means I never lose my temper, never lust, I'm never lazy, and I never do any good thing with mixed motives, well then, of course, holiness is impossible. Likewise, if God-pleasing holiness means I have to be filled to the brim with every Christian virtue without any room for improvement, I'm wasting my time even attempting to be holy. What does that look like for us? It looks like the kind of woe is me Christian way of thinking about life, doesn't it? If the only way that I can please God is perfect obedience, I'll never be there so the everyday experience of my Christian life is doomy and gloomy. But God doesn't expect our good works to be perfect in order to be pleased with them. Not the good works of Christians. You think about Job. Job was not perfect. There has never been a perfect man or woman walk this earth apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does God tell us about Job? He was blameless and upright. A man who feared God and shunned evil. You get to John the Baptist's parents. To Zechariah and Elizabeth. They weren't perfect either. But they pleased God. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Which makes us think there is hope for us as Christians that we can please God. We will never do it perfectly. Our salvation does not depend upon it. We can only be Christians because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has completely won our salvation. But there is, there is a way as we obey the Lord Jesus Christ, for us to please him. Now, how can we do that? In a life where we are still struggling with sin and all the challenges that it brings to us. You might be thinking, that there's too many things going on in my head. I'm, I know that I was a sinner. I know that I'm still wrestling with my sinful heart. I know that my works are never perfect, but I do want to please God. How do I hold all these things together without ever straying towards salvation by works? Again, I take you back to the confession. Not because I'm getting old and fuddy-duddy, but because the beautiful thing about things this helpful is that they have stood the test of time because they are true. They're a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches. And on this they say, yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, 
their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That is such a helpful summary of the Bible's teaching, of what it means for us as spirit-changed men and women to live a life that pleases our God in heaven. For as long as we are this side of glory, our, we, our lives will still be wrestling with sin. Our motives are always going to be mixed. Our end product is never going to be perfect. But in God's great grace, as we rely upon his spirit and as his son perfects all of our works, God looks in the areas where we obey him and he is pleased. If you're a Christian here this evening and you are seeking to please God, he is pleased. As the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, changing your desires, changing the way that you behave and think and the things that weigh upon your heart, he is making you more and more like the son whom he loves. To say that the Spirit couldn't produce spiritual fruit in your life is to say that my filthy rags are more powerful than the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who has taken us from dead in our trespasses and sins to made alive in Christ. He's able to do that which would change the way that we live such that what we do does genuinely please God. Which means you can do that at home tonight in school or work tomorrow, in a hard season that you might be living through, in a joyful season that you might be living through, you can, in small, maybe unseen by the world, but eternally significant ways, you can please God. Now, we need to caveat that in the present before we think about what it means for the future. Thirdly, very briefly, Pleasing God doesn't mean we won't suffer now. Knowing that we can please God doesn't mean that we won't suffer now. And how do we know that? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one person who has ever perfectly pleased God in this world, and he willingly suffered for our sake. And when you get to Peter's first letter, he reminds us of how Jesus has served as an example for us in that. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The Bible does not promise health, wealth, and prosperity. The Bible promises a suffering Savior who, as we suffer, he is with us. He sustains us. He gives us comfort and hope in our suffering and enables us to please us, him even when things are hard. Fourthly and finally, one of the ways he does so is by showing us that pleasing God now will result in rewards in the new creation. 
I want to build up the layers here as we finish so that you see how astonishingly, overwhelmingly glorious this is. I want you to build the layers to see the grace upon grace with which God encourages us here. We've already thought because of his saving grace, we have gone from being dead sinners to being adopted children who now by the Spirit have the inheritance to look forward to. The Holy Spirit is, des- is described as the deposit of our inheritance. And if you trace a lot of the passages in the New Testament, perhaps especially as you work through some of the epistles and the Gospels, very often the reference to eternal life and inheritance is referring to our promised eternal life. To the wonderful hope that we will indeed live forever and see our God face to face and do what we were created and redeemed to do praise and glorify and enjoy the God who has made us. That's infinitely more than we deserve. And that could have been enough. But God gives us more. You read through the rest of all that God has promised and he shows us that we are to reign with Christ. Not only will we live forever with our creator and see him face to face, but he promises that we will reign with him. So you get to 1 Corinthians 6, we'll get there soon, and we'll judge the angels. You get to Luke 19, and we will rule cities. We will exercise that authority and dominion that God created men and women to do. That's more than we deserve. And that will be enough. But God promises us more. Even though everything we do in this life is dependent upon his grace and his spirit, as we live obedient lives and please him, by his grace, he promises to reward us. Now, if you're back in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul doesn't specify what those blessings, what those rewards will be. But we know that he's thinking about something in addition to eternal life because that's how he distinguishes between the faithful builder teacher and the shoddy builder teacher. So both receive eternal life. Even the shoddy teacher, verse 15, who's only saved as one escaping through the flames, he receives eternal life too, but he doesn't receive a reward. Only the faithful teacher builders receive an award. And that, verse 8, is according to their own labor. Which reflects what the rest of the New Testament teaches us. So you get to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, For we must all, not just teachers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul's building on what Jesus has already taught in the parable of the ten miners. M-I-N-A-S, a reference to a form of currency. And 10 miners was the equivalent of about three months' worth of wage. I don't know what that looks like for you. Picture a quarter of your annual salary. The master gives it to his servants, entrusts it to them, goes away, and then calls them to ask how they've used it and what the yield has been. Luke 19, the first one came and said, Sir, your miners earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. 
Those who have been entrusted and have been faithful are blessed with greater rewards. Now, I know we hear all of that, and we don't have time to dig into all of this, but instinctively what we think is, if they've got more than me in heaven, I'm going to be grumpy. (laughs) It's not how heaven works. For three reasons. Number one, any of us will only be there by grace. Number two, there'll be no sin. So there won't be any sense of resentment because you're only there by grace and there's no sin to be tempted with. And thirdly, every single one of us will be filled to overflowing with thankfulness and praise to God. If it helps you to visualize it like this, think of different sizes of vases. Every single one is filled to overflowing. There is nothing lacking in your your fullness that would make you think, if only I had a little bit more topped up. You will be completely overflowing. But some vases will be larger without breeding any resentment because we're only there by grace and there's no sin in heaven. But all of us will have the promise of knowing the blessing of God and rewards for how we have sought to please him. You see what an encouragement that is in Christian living? See how that should spur us on? You can please God as a Christian. The Holy Spirit is at work within your life so that you have new desires and a spirit-given power to please the God of heaven. You will never do it perfectly. There will always be mixed motives and an imperfect ending. But as you do it sincerely, by his grace and his power, God is pleased. Which is wonderful, wonderful motivation. It's not the only motivation. There are other greater motivations in one sense, the glorious nature of God and all that he has done for us. We've seen that, but it is a motivation and I want you to hold on to it for the very reason that God reveals it to us in his word. Because the Christian life is hard. Some of you in owning your faith and publicly sharing that you are a Christian have lost family members and relationships because people no longer want to associate with you. Some of you are wrestling with what feels like a relentless battle against sin in your life. Others are just shattered by serving. Maybe serving in your case looks like caring for somebody in home in a way that is shaped by the gospel as you seek to show them the love of Christ. Maybe you're serving in a church ministry or in a ministry somewhere else and it's just exhausting and leaves you feeling like the only things you're ever receiving are criticism and complaint. One of my seminary professors encouraged my soul with these words this week. What a refreshment to our souls to know that our Father in heaven actually delights in our labors. It's like a salve on our blisters and a balm to our aching muscles to know that he is pleased with the faith-driven works of his children. He's like a father who sees the painting of his five-year-old brought home from school. He doesn't criticize them for it not being a Rembrandt. 
but posts it on the fridge for all to see. Well done, good and faithful servant. Christian, you can please God, not by anything in you. It is all of grace. But as you do, know the encouragement that the God of heaven who has set his love upon you is pleased with you. And grace upon grace upon grace has even promised to reward you in the new creation. That reward will never dim or fade. Unlike the passing compliments and encouragements of men and women in this life, that will last forever. So may we fix our eyes on what is eternal and serve a God who has promised to receive us home.